Chapters 15 and 16 of Book 8 of Les Miserables, Volume 3 by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Brendan Tannum. Les Miserables, Volume 3 by Victor Hugo. Translated by Isabel Florence Hapgood. Book 8, Chapter 15. Jondrette makes his purchases. A few moments later, about three o'clock, Courfeyrac chanced to be passing along the Rue Mouffetard in company with Bossuet. The snow had redoubled in violence and filled the air. Bossuet was just saying to Courfeyrac, one would say, to see all these snowflakes fall, that there was a plague of white butterflies in heaven. All at once Bossuet caught sight of Marius coming up the street towards the barrier with a peculiar air. Hold, said Bossuet, there's Marius. I saw him, said Courfeyrac. Don't let's speak to him. Why? He is busy. With what? Don't you see his air? What air? He has the air of a man who is following someone. That's true, said Bossuet. Just see the eyes he is making, said Courfeyrac. But who the deuce is he following? Some fine flowery bonneted wench. He's in love. But, observed Bossuet, I don't see any wench, nor any flowery bonnet in the street. There's not a woman round. Courfeyrac took a survey, and exclaimed, He's following a man. A man, in fact, wearing a grey cap, and whose grey beard could be distinguished, although they only saw his back, was walking along about twenty paces in advance of Marius. This man was dressed in a greatcoat, which was perfectly new and too large for him and in a frightful pair of trousers all hanging in rags and black with mud Pusway burst out laughing who is that man he retorted courfeyrac he's a poet poets are very fond of wearing the trousers of dealers in rabbit skins and the overcoats of peers of france let's see where marius will go said Bosway. let's see where the man is going let's follow them hey Bossway exclaimed Courfeyrac, eagle of Mo, you are a prodigious brute. Follow a man who is following another man, indeed. They retraced their steps. Marius had, in fact, seen Jondrette passing along the Rue Mouffetard, and was spying on his proceedings. Jondrette walked straight ahead, without a suspicion that he was already held by a glance. He quitted the Rue Mouffetard, and Marius saw him enter one of the most terrible hovels in the Rue Gracieuse. He remained there about a quarter of an hour, then returned to the Rue Mouffetard. He halted at an ironmonger's shop, which then stood at the corner of the Rue Pierre Lombard, and a few minutes later Marius saw him emerge from the shop, holding in his hand a huge cold chisel with a white wood handle, which he concealed beneath his greatcoat. At the top of the Rue Petit Gentilly, he turned to the left and proceeded rapidly to the Rue de Petit Banquier. The day was declining. The snow, which had ceased for a moment, had just begun again. Marius posted himself on the watch at the very corner of the Rue de Petit Banquier, which was deserted, as usual, and did not follow Jondrette into it. It was lucky that he did so, for... On arriving in the vicinity of the wall where Marius had heard the long-haired man on the bearded man conversing, Jondrette turned around, made sure that no one was following him, did not see him, then sprang across the wall and disappeared. 
The wasteland bordered by this wall communicated with the backyard of an ex-livery stable-keeper of bad repute, who had failed and who still kept a few old single-seated berlins under his sheds. Marius thought that it would be wise to profit by Jondrette's absence to return home. Moreover, it was growing late. Every evening, Ma'am Bougon, when she set out for her dishwashing in town, had a habit of locking the door, which was always closed at dusk. Marius had given his key to the inspector of police. It was important, therefore, that he should make haste. Evening had arrived. Night had almost closed in. On the horizon and in the immensity of space, there remained but one spot illuminated by the sun, and that was the moon. It was rising in a ruddy glow behind the low dome of Salpetriere. Marius returned to number 50 to 52 with great strides. The door was still open when he arrived. He mounted the stairs on tiptoe and glided along the wall of the corridor to his chamber. This corridor, as the reader will remember, was bordered on both sides by attics, all of which were, for the moment, empty and to let. Mabougon was in the habit of leaving all the doors open. As he passed one of these attics, Marius thought he perceived in the uninhabited cell the motionless heads of four men, vaguely lighted up by a remnant of daylight falling through a dormer window. Marius made no attempt to see, not wishing to be seen himself. He succeeded in reaching his chamber without being seen and without making any noise. It was high time. A moment later he heard Mambougon take her departure, locking the door of the house behind her. End of chapter 15 Chapter 16 in which will be found the words to an English air which was in fashion in 1832. Marius seated himself on his bed. It might have been half-past five o'clock. Only half an hour separated him from what was about to happen. He heard the beating of his arteries as one hears the ticking of a watch in the dark. He thought of the double march which was going on at that moment in the dark, crime advancing on one side, justice coming up on the other. He was not afraid, but he could not think without a shudder of what was about to take place. As is the case with all those who are suddenly assailed by an unforeseen adventure, the entire day produced upon him the effect of a dream, and in order to persuade himself that he was not the prey of a nightmare, he had to feel the cold barrels of the steel pistols in his trousers' pockets. It was no longer snowing. The moon disengaged itself more and more clearly from the mist, and its light mingled with the white reflection of the snow which had fallen, communicated to the chamber a sort of twilight aspect. There was a light in the Jondrette den. Marius saw the hole in the wall shining with a reddish glow which seemed bloody to him. It was true that the light could not be produced by a candle. However, there was not a sound in the Jondrette quarters, not a soul was moving there, not a soul speaking, not a breath. The silence was glacial and profound, and had it not been for that light, he might have thought himself next door to a sepulchre. Marius softly removed his boots and pushed them under his bed. Several minutes elapsed. Marius heard the lower door turn on its hinges. A heavy step mounted the staircase and hastened along the corridor. The latch of the hovel was noisily lifted. It was Jondrette returning. Instantly several voices arose. 
The whole family was in the garret, only it had been silent in the master's absence, like wolf whelps in the absence of the wolf. It's I, said he. Good evening, Daddy, yelped the girls. Well, said the mother. All's going first-rate, responded Jondrette, but my feet are beastly cold. Good, you have dressed up. You have done well. You must inspire confidence. All ready to go out. Don't forget what I told you. You will do everything sure. Rest easy. Because, said Jondrette, and he left the phrase unfinished. Marius heard him lay something heavy on the table, probably the chisel which he had purchased. By the way, said Jondrette, have you been eating here? Yes, said the mother. I got three large potatoes and some salt. I took advantage of the fire to cook them. Good, returned Jondrette. Tomorrow I will take you out to dine with me. We will have a duck and fixings. You shall dine like Charles the Tenth. All is going well. Then he added, The mouse trap is open. The cats are there. He lowered his voice still further and said, Put this in the fire. Marius heard the sound of charcoal being knocked with the tongs or some iron utensil, and Jondrette continued, Have you greased the hinges of the door so that they will not squeak? Yes, replied the mother. What time is it? Nearly six. The half-hour struck from Saint-Madar a while ago. The devil ejaculated Jondrette. The children must go and watch. Come, you. Do you listen here? A whispering ensued. Jondrette's voice became audible again. "'Has old Bougon left?' "'Yes,' said the mother. "'Are you sure that there is no one in our neighbour's room? "'He has not been in all day, "'and you know very well that this is his dinner hour. "'You are sure?' "'Sure.' "'All the same,' said Jondrette. "'There's no harm in going to see whether he is there. "'Here, my girl, take the candle and go there.' Marius fell on his hands and knees and crawled silently under his bed. Hardly had he concealed himself when he perceived a light through the crack of his door. Papa cried a voice, he is not in here. He recognized the voice of the eldest daughter. Did you go in? demanded her father. No, replied the girl, but as his key is in the door, he must be out. The father exclaimed, go in, nevertheless. The door opened, and Marius saw the tall Jondrette come in with a candle in her hand. She was as she had been in the morning, only still more repulsive in this light. She walked straight up to the bed. Marius endured an indescribable moment of anxiety, but near the bed there was a mirror nailed to the wall, and it was thither that she was directing her steps. She raised herself on tiptoe and looked at herself in it. In the neighbouring room the sound of iron articles being moved was audible. She smoothed her hair with the palm of her hand, and smiled into the mirror, humming with her cracked and sepulchral voice, Nos amours en dure tout un semaine, make de bon hour les instants en court, s'adore huit jours, c'était bien la pain, les temps des amours devaient durer toujours, devraient durer toujours, devraient durer toujours. In the meantime, Marius trembled, it seemed impossible to him that she should not hear his breathing. She stepped to the window and looked out with the half-foolish way she had. "'How ugly Paris is when it has put on a white chemise,' said she. She returned to the mirror and began again to put on airs before it, scrutinising herself full face and three-quarters face in turn, 
Well, cried her father, what are you about there? I am looking under the bed and the furniture, she replied, continuing to arrange her hair. There's no one here. Booby yelled her father, come here this minute and don't waste any time about it. Coming, coming, said she, one has no time for anything in this hovel. She hummed, vous me quittez pour aller à la gloire, mon triste course vivra partout. She cast a parting glance in the mirror and went out, shutting the door behind her. A moment more, and Marius heard the sound of the two young girls' bare feet in the corridor, and Jondrette's voice shouting to them, Pay strict heed, one on the side of the barrier, the other at the corner of the rue de Petit Banquier. Don't lose sight for a moment of the door of this house, and the moment you see anything, rush here on the instant, as hard as you can go. You have a key to get in. The eldest girl grumbled, the idea of standing watch in the snow barefoot. "'Tomorrow you shall have some dainty little green silk boots,' said the father. They ran downstairs, and a few seconds later the shock of the outer door as it banged to announce that they were outside. There now remained in the house only Marius, the Jondrettes, and probably also the mysterious persons of whom Marius had caught a glimpse in the twilight behind the door of the unused attic. End of chapter 16